The story of Joseph is one of the best known in the Bible, even among those who've never opened its pages. This is largely because of the success of the musical Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, written 50 years ago by Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber. It has been performed over 20,000 times in places ranging from villages and schools to theaters in the West End and on Broadway. And while it mostly follows the plot line of the account in the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, Young Man Rises from Slavery to Supremacy, there is one fundamental flaw in its understanding of the story. When Joseph is finally promoted overnight from prison to prime minister, he sings the secret of his success. And this is what he sings. I won't sing it, I'll just read it. Anyone from anywhere can make it if they get a lucky break. Nothing could be further from the truth of what the Bible affirms and what Joseph affirms. Reassuring his fearful brothers that he will not take revenge on them for selling him into slavery all those years ago, Joseph says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You intended it for harm, but God intended it for good. Now, this is a truth you can only affirm in the high points of life if you've learned it at the low points of life. And Joseph experienced plenty of those. For those who are unfamiliar with the details, let's review some of the low points in the life of Joseph. Think of that moment as a 17-year-old, seized by his own brothers, stripped of his special robe, thrown in an empty cistern. Then that moment when he was hauled out, sold for 20 shekels of silver to slave traders. Did Joseph look back in anguish? as his brothers disappeared over the horizon, he, he headed towards Egypt. Or imagine him paraded in the slave market in Egypt. People prodding and looking at him and testing out his physical appearance and strength. What a humiliation for a privileged son in a wealthy family as he's finally sold to an army officer named Potiphar. And then perhaps it was when he was falsely accused of rape by his master's wife after he refused to sleep with her. And he's thrown into prison. Everything finally seemed to be on the up again. Now he's cast down again. I'm sure that all of these were low points in his experience, but I think the lowest point is yet to come. So, look with me at the lowest point in the life of Joseph. You'll need to turn to the Bible. It's Genesis 40, if you've got one of these Bibles. Now, if you don't have a Bible, it would really help to have one. So, people are wandering around and they'll give you one. Don't feel embarrassed. If you forgot yours or you don't have one, that's fine. 
Or in these days I discover people keep turning to their phones, which makes me very suspicious. <laughs> so I'm trusting your integrity that you are not checking your text messages or the internet. Genesis chapter 40. Let's pick up the story at the end of chapter 39. Joseph's in prison. But while Joseph, this is verse, sorry, the end of that verse 20. But while Joseph was there in prison, Joseph's master took him, put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Verse 20. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him and he showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warder. So the warder put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. He was made responsible for all that was done there. The warder paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph, gave him success in whatever he did. Things are on the up again for Joseph. So let's read on in chapter 40. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt defended their master, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. After they'd been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, each of them had a dream that same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in custody with him in his master's house, why do you look so sad today? We both had dreams, they answered. There's no one to interpret them. Of course, in those days, in that culture, dreams and their interpretation were very important. People earned their living by interpreting dreams. But here in prison, they have no one to turn to. However, Joseph knows he can help them, for he knows God. We read on, verse 8. Then Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God. Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said to him, In my dream, I saw a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, put the cup in his hand. This is what it means, Joseph said to him. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh. Get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I've done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon." When the chief baker saw that Joseph had given a favorable interpretation, he said to Joseph, I too had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread. In the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. This is what it means, Joseph said. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and impale your body on a pole, and the birds will eat away your flesh. Sure enough, three days later, the dreams come true. Verse 20. Now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday, and he gave a feast for all his officials. 
He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hand, but he impaled the chief baker just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. Now pause for a moment and ask yourself, what is Joseph thinking here? Is he not thinking God is in this? This is no accident. Surely this is God's means to get me out of this prison and vindicate my name. That's why he says, look again at the words in verses 14 and 15, why he says to the cupbearer, when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison, for I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I've done nothing wrong to deserve being put in a dungeon. So he waits. I want you to picture it. Three days later, both of them taken away. Joseph hears on the grapevine, just as he said. The baker's impaled. Cupbearer is elevated. And I bet he's thinking to himself, I'll give him a day or two just to say a word. And a day turns into a week. And a week turns into two weeks. And two weeks turns into a month. And a month turns into a year. Nothing happens. Why? Well, we're told. The last verse of the chapter tells us. I focus on this verse. I don't very often preach just on one verse, but I'm talking in context. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. And that is why I believe this is the lowest point in the life of Joseph. For behind the forgetfulness of the cupbearer, is a far greater fear for Joseph, the fear that God has forgotten him. How else can he now be released from prison? There's no appeal system. There's no Amnesty International. There's no campaign for the Hebrew one. Now, if you believe that anyone from anywhere can get it, make it if they get a lucky break, you must also believe that anyone from anywhere can suffer if they get an unlucky break. But for those of us here today, and I know a lot of you, but not by any means all of you who are visiting, I don't know which of those philosophers you hold in life. But if you are a Christian, there are no lucky breaks or unlucky breaks. Rather, in a well-known verse in the New Testament, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Notice what it says, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, that's great to have as a plaque on your wall, or wallpaper on your laptop. Yet, let's be honest, friends. Sometimes it's hard to believe. Sometimes it's hard to see. Especially at life's lowest points when God seems to forget. And I simply say, maybe you were there this morning. Things have happened in your life. And God seems to have forgotten you. Oh, you may not admit it. You're still singing along with everybody else. Still smile and shake hands and go home. But in the quietness of your own heart, maybe you believe that God has forgotten you. 
Of course, God hasn't forgotten Joseph. His plan was still in place right down to the last detail and the last minute. And I simply want to say today that if you are following the Lord Jesus Christ, seeking to serve him, however inadequately we all do, God's plan for you is still in place. But what I want to do is focus on this and let, let's focus on what we can learn from the life of Joseph. That's my title, I say to preachers, one main point so people remember it. So I hope on the test of every sermon is the Thursday morning test. What was Sunday sermon about? Thursday morning, when God seems to forget. And we need to understand these things from two perspectives. We need to try to understand them from our limited perspective and we need to understand them from God's complete perspective. So let's start with us and the story of Joseph. Why does God seem to forget? Those times when God seems to forget are for the maturing of our character. For the maturing of our character. Joseph was in God's school of learning. He was being prepared for future service and for future greatness. And God is using some hard and unusual experiences to mature him and make him the person he promised he would be when as a 17-year-old he gave him those amazing dreams which he somewhat unwisely or at least immaturely shared with his brothers that one day they and their father and mother would bow down and worship him. Joseph needed to mature. His faith in God needed to develop. And that can only happen through difficulties. There's no other way. Maybe you've just become a Christian. Great. You want to become like Jesus? You want to mature and grow as a Christian? It will only happen through difficulties and suffering. In his little letter in the New Testament, James writes to Christians who are suffering. And he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. As I mentioned, Nita's had various operations on her feet. The last one was in September. And quite rightly, the, uh, the consultant said she needs to keep her feet up, which meant that the, the cooking devolved to me. Now, I am not the world's greatest cook, but I am the master of the microwave. <laughs> and I'm thankful for Tesco Ready Meals. Now... I take the ready meal out of the freezer, best cooked from frozen, and on the back it says, microwave for nine minutes, or put in the oven for 40 minutes. Guess which one I always choose. <laughs> My wife will tell you, I am not a patient person. If it says nine minutes in the microwave, I'm not gonna waste another 31 minutes with it sitting in the oven. See, God has been working in the life of Joseph to make him ready. 
Joseph has matured. His faith has developed through difficulties of many kinds. He doesn't know it. The final stage of the maturing process is in prison. But he's not quite ready yet. On that day when the cupbearer is released, God looked down, as it were, on Joseph and said, he needs two more years in the oven. Well, you may ask, what, what more does Joseph need to learn? Surely, he must be ready by now. Joseph has one final lesson to learn through difficulties and specifically through disappointment. Look again more closely at what Joseph says to the cupbearer. We looked at it before. When all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh. Get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I've done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. Joseph is trying to justify himself and to clear his own name. You may think this is a human thing to do. And in one sense you're right. But it is not the divine way. God has something much greater in store for Joseph beyond his own personal vindication. And that is seen by the fact that cupbearer does not follow the strategy Joseph has laid out. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. And as far as we know, the cupbearer never spoke to Pharaoh about Joseph's problems before. Listen, if I'd been writing this as a novel, you know, the first thing I'd have done when I was made prime minister, I'd be around to Potiphar's house and sought out Potiphar's wife. Some of us have been treated badly in life. Let's face it. Betrayed. And your natural instinct is to want to sort it out yourself, is it not? You, you sort of dream and imagine what it's going to be like when you face that person up who's done you in or whatever it may be. I don't know, that partner who betrayed you, that boss who fired you unjust, unwat, unjustly. Can't wait to clear your name, but it's not God's way. You see, it's not, it was not the way of God's son. Peter again reminds suffering Christians. Listen carefully, I've often thought about these verses. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, instead he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. The American pastor R.T. Kendall points out that after his resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ did not go and see Pilate, Herod, and all the Jewish authorities to point out how wrong they'd been. He has more important work to do beyond his own vindication. You see, there is a place for vindication at the judgment seat of God. Leave it there. Wait until then. God has his own way of dealing with these things which is greater and better, as Joseph finally learns. But waiting is never easy, and so Joseph's faith is challenged through difficulties, through disappointment, and in order to preserve the alliteration, it's also preserved through darkness over the period that followed. If you know the Bible, it's very interesting to compare the life of Joseph with that of his father, Jacob. Who was the greater man of faith? God appeared personally as my reading seems to indicate God appeared personally with words of assurance and promise to Jacob on at least five occasions we have no record of any direct communication between the Lord and Joseph other than the dreams he had as a 17 year old 
You see, how wonderful it would have been if at the end of chapter 40, it says, the cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. And that night, an angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, fear not, Joseph, I am still with you. Hang in there for two more years. No word, no dream, no word for two more years. Have you got your Bible still open? I was struck by the word full. When two full years had passed, for two years, nothing dramatic happened for Joseph. And yet he continued to experience what he had been experiencing already, that the Lord was with him. And when it was over, he was able, when his dreams were vindicated, he was, his dreams were fulfilled. Joseph was not bitter over the wasted years. Friends, you cannot afford to spend your life in bitterness about things that have happened that you cannot resolve. They've not only wrecked that, your past, it will wreck your present and your future. He's not bitter. He could finally say, and mean, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. How did he acquire such a strong faith in God? Through the hard school of experience, even when, especially when his hopes were dashed and nothing seemed to happen for two years. And of course, he didn't know it was two years. It could have been 22 years. You see, faith in God is strengthened through dark times when there are no visible signs. The desire for signs indicates a lack of faith. You remember what our Lord Jesus Christ said to doubting Thomas, who said, unless I see the nail prints and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. And the Lord graciously appeared to him. And then he said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So how, how are you doing? How am I doing? Hanging in there believing? Through difficulties? Through disappointment? Through darkness? When God seems to have forgotten you and is silent. And who knows in God's goodness, maybe you were here today in this church on this occasion to hear God's reassurance that his plan is still in place. You see, God seems to forget for the deepening of our faith. But far more importantly, God seems to forget sometimes. Here's my other point, the other side of the coin, as it were. For the deepening of our faith, but also for the perfecting of his plans. For the perfecting of his plans. Let's pick up the narrative in chapter 41. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. In fact, two similar dreams. And no one, even the professionals, can interpret them. Then and only then, the cupbearer remembers. This is a Homer Simpson moment. No! Then the cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I'm reminded of my shortcomings. Pharaoh was once angry with your servants. A couple of years ago, I think. Uh, he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream that same night. Each dream had a meaning of its own. Now, now there was a young Hebrew man there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We, we told him our dreams. He interpreted them for us, giving each man his interpretation of his dream. And things turned out exactly as he interpreted them. I was restored to my position. The other man was impaled. And Joseph is sent for, 
and explains that God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. I won't read the rest of chapter verse 25. God reveals there will be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of desperate famine. And the outcome is that Joseph is promoted to prime minister of Egypt and he institutes a plan which is God's plan. Notice it's God's plan of salvation. It is God's plan of salvation for Pharaoh and the people of Egypt as they're saved during seven years of famine. More importantly, it is God's plan for Joseph and the chosen family of Israel through whom blessing will come for the whole world will be preserved from famine through this period. Through whom will come God's plan of salvation for the whole world. Joseph has spent 13 years in Egypt before he is finally elevated at the age of 30. It will be another nine years before his brothers come and bow down to him and his dreams are fulfilled. 22 years for a dream's fulfillment. You see, there is a great danger in wanting to be used by God and I have suffered from it all my life. It is impatience. We believe we know what God's plan is for us and we rush ahead in front of him. We may be right about God's plan, but we may be wrong about his timing. And there is a warning for all of us here, whoever you are. We naturally want to get out of our difficulties as soon as possible. You know, we live in an age, do we not, of instant communication. Nietzsche and I were reflecting. We were the first mission team for the mission we worked for, Wycliffe Bible Translators, in Pakistan in 1978. You know, and the great frustrations, trying to get news back from headquarters back in the UK. It used to take four to five weeks to get an answer for a, for a message. Please can we spend some money on buying whatever it was, you know. And we waited five weeks. It drove me mad. We went back 25 years later and visited the project which we established. And boy, they're all on the internet. It's going, I internet. I sent him a message yesterday and I've got no response yet. I sent you a text message. You haven't answered it yet, but you just sent it half an hour ago. I know, but why didn't you answer it? We get impatient when God doesn't answer our dreams and doesn't answer our prayers. Two weeks, two years, come on. I don't know, maybe God has promised you something and you've been waiting for it and pretty much you're pretty impatient about it all. God, God's timing is perfect to fulfill his plans which will bring him the greatest glory for his plan, not just for you, but for his overall plan for all things. Can, can we, well, can I not ask, why, not ask why is God allowing these circumstances? But how can God be best glorified through my circumstances, even through my suffering? So in the last chapter of the book of Genesis, Joseph reassures his fearful brothers who are still absolutely convinced that he's going to, now their father has just died, he's going he's to do them and he must have been holding this resentment all this time. They invent some crazy story that our father told you not to hurt us. And Joseph he weeps. You can't understand it. You don't believe me. Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? 
That's what he's saying. Am I in the place of God? No, I'm not, and neither are you. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You see, Joseph is a vital link in God's plan of salvation. This book, the Bible, maybe you've just started reading the Bible. I don't know. I've been reading it all my life, but maybe some of you read it all your life. But you need to remember, essentially, this is a story. It begins in a garden, it ends in a city, and it follows a plot line, and the plot line is God's plan of salvation. And this is one link along the chain that points to God's perfect plan of salvation. It is a line that points ultimately to God's perfect plan which he will fulfill. Now, notice. It came at the perfect time. Galatians 4, Paul's letter to the Galatians. It says, when the time had fully come, so fully again, God sent his son, born of a woman, Born under law to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. God sent his son, born of a woman. He's this baby, unlike any other baby, fully human yet fully God. How's he going to fulfill God's plan? He's going to do it the way we need to do it, but we fail. It's God's perfect son. These words in Hebrews 5, I know you've been studying Hebrews, I'm sure you looked at them, interesting words. Although he was a son, Jesus... He learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Now, you read that and you think, he learned obedience? Yes, he did. You can only learn obedience if disobedience is an option. And for Jesus, every step of the way, there was an option to disobey or to obey. At every step of the way, he continued to perfectly obey his father's will in a way that no other human being ever has and ever will do. Right to the point where he wrestles in prayer in the garden, sweat as it were, great drops of blood, and says, not my will, but yours be done. His life is aimed to that one great purpose. And so as the perfect son, he is able in God's plan of salvation to offer the perfect sacrifice. Here's what John writes in his little letter, 1 John 4.10. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. If you've got an NIV at the bottom, one of those little bits you need to get glasses to read, literally it says propitiation. The one who would turn aside God's wrath, taking away our sin. The perfect son took on himself our sin, for he had no sin of his own. He who knew no sin became sin for us, so that we might be right with God, turning aside God's righteous anger against sin. Now, if you're not a Christian, this is the best news of all, because through this you can become a child of God. And when you trust in Christ, who died in your place, as you learn the word propitiation, your sin then his righteousness becomes your righteousness and you're adopted into God's family given his spirit you see think of what Jesus did on that day when he died on the cross there was darkness over the whole land for hour, three hours 
We may feel God has forgotten us when all seems dark and black, but this was the true darkest moment in human history when the sun stopped shining and he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? First time only in the Bible where he addresses God, not as Father, but as God. This was true abandonment, separated for the first time in eternity from his Father when God did seem to forget. Yet, here's the wonderful thing. It was all part of God's amazing plan of salvation. Here's the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost. The crowds are running around saying, who are these people declaring the wonderful works of God in their own language? What's happened? And Peter gives this amazing message, a synopsis of it. And he says this, listen carefully. This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross but God raised him from the dead can you hear the echo you intended it for evil but God intended it for good you did it you are fully responsible but God intended it he's fully sovereign don't ask me how to reconcile the two I simply tell you both are equally true For our good, God intended it for good, for our good, for our salvation, so that we might be forgiven, reconciled to God, made members of his family. Made his children, given a great and glorious hope. And that's God's perfect plan of salvation for us. Romans 8, wonderful chapter. Now, if we are children, children of God through faith in Christ, if we're children, then we're heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Don't stop there. If indeed, what? We share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. And only when you appreciate that can you really affirm the bumper sticker verse and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. So what am I saying? Everything will turn out fine in this life like Joseph experienced? Not at all. Sometimes it may work that way, sometimes it may not. But I do tell you this. We are assured, ultimately, that we'll all live happily ever after. Eternally happy ever after. Here's the end of Romans 8. Forever. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our I am convinced. Are you convinced? Is that your conviction? Or do you hold on to the hope that anyone from anywhere can make you if they get a lucky break and keep buying your weekly lottery, lottery ticket, which will not satisfy This is the great hope that we have. This is a word of reassurance, of encouragement, of great joy. Almost finished. Let me finish with a poem. It's a poem that used to be well known. The older people will know it. Uh, let me remind the younger people of it. It reminds us that in this life, we do not always see all the details. 
but one day we will. It's on the screen then, I'm not sure whether you can read it. And I have a job reading these poems, so if I get a bit choked up, you understand. Is it pictures God as a weaver, weaving the patterns of our life. My life is but a weaving between my Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow. And I, in foolish pride, forget he sees the upper. And I, the underside, not till the loom is silent, when the shuttle cease to fly, will God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth condemn. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice with him. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice with him. Let's just pray together at the end, shall we?